0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: Revelation chapter 5, beginning to read at the first verse. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures, and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honour, and glory, and praise then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power. Forever and ever. The four living creatures said Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter.
0: Thank you, Stephen. What an amazing reading. Uh, this is our final sermon in our series in Revelation I hope you've found it uplifting as we've looked at these wonderful pictures heavenly pictures that try to give us a glimpse of things that we could never see with our own eyes here on earth but things that are real and shape how we live here on earth as God's people But I wonder as you've repeatedly heard, as I I hope you have, through the series so far, the challenge to keep worshipping Jesus Christ. I wonder if you felt, is he really worth it? The big point of today, it's not hard to see again, is it? Uh, It's worship him. (laughs) Worship the rescuer king. But is he worth it? That question would have been especially sharp in the first century AD for the Apostle John, the one who was given this heavenly vision to pass on to uh, Jesus' churches, because the church in John's day was facing terrible persecution. Here's a picture you can see on the screen. It's by a Frenchman called Léon Jérôme. He used to be apparently the most popular painter of his day in the 19th century, and he's depicting um, various persecutions. It's a mashup of various persecutions of Christians in Rome. You can see towering over the Roman arena in the background there, a statue of a god on top of a Roman temple. A temple where Christians could have made all their troubles disappear simply by offering a single, single sacrifice to one of the Roman gods. In fact, Christians didn't even have to offer that sacrifice themselves. They could get a slave to go and do it on their behalf. And then they would no longer have to be thrown to the lions. But many refused. Because they considered their God, their own God, so worthy of worship as the only true God, that to offer worship to any other God was unthinkable for them. Even if it meant being torn apart by a wild beast. Do you know, actually, it could be even worse than that. Can you see around the arena there, the the torches burning around the arena? Those torches are people. Christian people that the Roman Empire covered in pitch and set alight because they would not worship Roman gods. I'd like you just to imagine yourself in the shoes of your brothers and sisters from the 1st and 2nd century. You've got three choices. Being fed to the lions. Being set alight as a human torch. Or just sending your slave to offer one little sacrifice to a Roman God. Is Jesus really worth worshipping if it costs you everything? In Leafy Fullwood, we just don't face that kind of cost for worshipping Christ, do we? In fact, it was only a century or two ago when it was people who refused to worship Christ who would be publicly shamed and punished. I wonder if you've seen these, um, these stocks. Have seen those stocks in Fulwood. You can find them outside the Fulwood Old Chapel. I think they were last used in the 18th century, maybe the 19th century, to punish people who didn't come to church on Sunday to worship Christ. Um, how about that for an evangelistic strategy? <laughs> of course, using social pressure to get people to worship someone or something is it's a useless thing to do, especially when history turns and the social pressures flip the other way, right? Well, history is turning now in the UK. I mean, we're a long way from being burned as human torches or being fed to lions, but at the very least, being a Christian, especially one who actually believes the Bible... Well, that makes you very odd, even offensive to some, doesn't it? We're under pressure to stop loving and living for Christ. Haven't we seen in seven different ways, in the seven letters to the churches, the pressure, the temptations that pull us away from worshipping Christ? Go back and listen to those talks if you missed them. But the question now in Revelation is, what's going to keep us Worshipping Christ persistently, wanting him passionately, even more than wealth and comfort. Working for him purposefully, even if it does your reputation, no good. Well, from chapter 4 verse 1, last week we've been given an open door into heaven to see why our God is so worthy of worship we saw the greatest of creatures last week, the angelic cherubim and the angelic elders, worshiping God as the Creator King, so that we little creatures would be wrapped up into their worship. But John has more to see and more to show us today. Did you see? Chapter 5, it breaks into three scenes, each beginning, I saw, I saw. 5 verse 1, I saw. 5 verse 6, I saw. Then 5 verse 11, I looked and heard. So, what does he see? What does he see that moves him and indeed all creation to worship? Well, to begin with, 5 verses 1 to 5 see the lion who conquers our sorrow. Verse 1 Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. A scroll, verse 2, did you see that nobody can open? What is this scroll? It's intriguing, isn't it? And ultimately, did you notice? You're never actually told what's written on it. It's left a secret. God's good purposes are closed to us. I think you're not told to kind of create some kind of intrigue and tension to underline the point that you can't know god's good plans oh we can work a few things out from the description though can't we verse one this scroll see where it is the scroll is in the right hand of him who sits on the throne the right hand of the king of the universe the right hand of any king was considered their hand of powerful rule so i take it this scroll is his powerful decrees for the universe that he rules Also, notice in verse 1, it's written on both sides, this scroll, which suggests a scroll that is full. Maybe then this is the fullness of all God's decrees and designs for our universe. But, end of verse 1, the scroll is sealed shut with seven seals. And nobody, nobody can even look inside it. Why would God's good rule be closed to his creatures in this way? Well, I take it that it's because of what we saw last week in part. I mean, last week we saw that heaven's greatest angels worship God as the king because he's the creator. But although that's how they worship God, none of us has worshiped him that way at least not perfectly, as he deserves. In fact, we all flirt with false gods. We all flirt with worshipping idols. And many of us, me included, have gone much further and jumped into bed with false gods at different times in our lives. As a teenager, I worshipped computer games, girls, and rugby. As a 20-year-old, I worshipped my wife, Understandably, she is as close to a a goddess as a human being can come. As a 30-year-old, I worship professional success and status. As a 40-year-old, I just want to sleep. Somebody let me sleep. (laughs) Babysitting duties are available, if you... But you know, all of my idols have left me in tears. Literal tears, at times. Except for the long-suffering Amy, where it's the opposite. I often reduce her to tears. No idol can bear the weight of our worship because only the one who bears us up and gives us every breath can do that. And every idol disappoints us and leaves a bitter taste in the mouth in the end. Above all, the great tragedy of refusing to truly worship the God who gives us life and who wants to rule over us for our good is that we then become unworthy of Him ruling over us for our good, unworthy of life. The angel in verse 2 asks in a loud voice because He's asking the whole universe, Who is worthy to break the scrolls and open the seals? I've got those the wrong way around. But there's silence because nobody, nobody can reply, I am. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it because God's good plan for human flourishing remains his private paper kept under lock and key. His commands for our good as his creatures are a closed book. His royal wisdom that can unlock all the knottiest problems of our world remain a mystery bound in a secret scroll that none of us is worthy to open or read or see or know or experience. I wonder have you wept at the way the world is? Have you wept at the way you are? John did. He sobs uncontrollably here, doesn't he? Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Is that your experience? I know many of you. I know it is. And it is our experience, isn't it, that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We're not the way we're supposed to be. Come on, isn't that all a little bit negative? I mean, the world's all right, isn't it? We could still win the fourth test today. Is it really that bad? Well, let me ask you, maybe you're just in denial. Maybe, could you just be sheltered? I have traveled in the former Soviet Union. I've seen some messy things. Leave, Leafy Forward, go and See the injustice, the oppression, the war, the racism, the misogyny, the envy, the lies, the adultery, the betrayal, the violence, the anger, the pitiless selfishness of people in the world, evil in all its forms. But of course, you don't have to travel very far at all, do you? You can simply look into your own heart. That's all I need to do. But notice, God doesn't want us simply to weep for the sake of weeping. Rather, he wants us to face up to our sorrow, of which we're all a part, so that we might then find the joy of the comfort of seeing the rescuer king. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Look. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He's conquered. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Here is the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. He has come and he has conquered. See the Lion who conquers our sorrow. Judah who was Judah, the great-grandson of the forefather of the Jewish people, Abraham. God promised that one of Judah's descendants would be a mighty king, a Messiah, who would bring a messianic age of blessing to all the families of the earth, ruling over them for good at last and doing away with all that was bad and sad in the world. And you know, when Israel actually got its first Messiah, Messiah is just a word for king, seven centuries after that promise to Judah, He came from the tribe of Judah, King David, the Messiah. One of the greatest and best men ever to walk the earth. But even he proved unworthy. He failed to worship God. And then his royal line failed after him. But now, the royal line that was broken has been restored. And the Lion of Judah has come and has conquered, and his name is Jesus, and he can dry your tears. My grandpa always used to say to me, kid, you've got to choose. You can stay in Stockport and be a big fish in a small pond, or go to London and be a small fish in a big pond. Well, do you know my experience is that try as I might, I never prove a big enough beast to stop the tears, no matter how small the pond. I can't even rule over my own heart. Isn't the world less a pond and more a jungle overgrown with evil? Putin, political hypocrisy, poverty, plague, that's what I'm calling COVID now. But the evil isn't just out there, is it? There's again, all my own personal wrongdoing, all part of the problem too, And that's just a few of the things beginning with the letter P. There's a whole lot of 25 letters of the alphabet. But the Lion King has come. And the Lion is powerful. To do away with every problem. His power is unstoppable, untamable, invincible. There is nothing he cannot handle. Nothing that he fears or that brings him to tears He can rule the big bad jungle of this world and restore it to the good garden paradise that God always intended for us to live in. I wonder, when you hear it in those terms, does it sound a little bit like a Disney fairy tale? Well, I want to tell you that this is nothing like Disney. Maybe it does sound too good to be true. It is really good, But it is true, and it's nothing like Disney. Do you know the Disney Lion King film? Yeah? In that film, the lion cub, Simba, is the son of the Lion King. And Simba, the son, doesn't listen to his dad one day, the king, and it all ends in tears for Simba. Some evil hyenas and his evil uncle kick him out of the kingdom, and Simba just needs to wait, though, till he's grown up. And got big enough to be the Lion King himself. Believe in yourself, says Disney. Just keep trying. You'll get there in the end. But you won't. The end of every person is not to defeat evil. The end of all of us, very obviously, is death. No, none of us is the Lion King. And we were never meant to be, and we're not worthy to be, but Jesus is. And God has given us Jesus to be the king that we need, the big beast who is powerful enough and good enough to protect and provide and powerfully rule us for our good forever. Or is he? Is he? Because you see, John hears about a lion. But then when he looks in verse 6, what he sees is a lamb. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Now the picture gets really weird, doesn't it? It's got seven horns and seven eyes. And it's a lamb that's been slain. Why do we see a lamb? if he's meant to be a lion. A lamb's not powerful, especially not one that's been slaughtered. So is he powerful to sort out the world or not? And why all these animals anyway? And what's with the horns? You know, perhaps the images are actually easier to understand than you might think. You see, we often depict nations and their rulers as strong animals, don't we? USA, what's that? An eagle, right? Uh, England, a pit bull. Strong dog. Whales, a magical, red, non-existent dragon. Could be worse if you're Welsh. Canada has a beaver. So. But political powers, they're often depicted by animals, aren't they? Usually big, powerful beasts, barring Canada. Why is this one, who must be the greatest king of all, why is he depicted as a dead lamb? Well, if you're a Christian here, you know, don't you? You know. Before the lion could bring you back to God, he had to die on your behalf, dying the death that you deserve as a sacrificial lamb on your behalf that you might have the promise of living forever. Verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do we forget the price of sin? The price of rejecting the giver of life, that's what sin is, is, as you might expect, death. Do we really believe that? That I have no right to be here anymore? Because only getting that can we understand why he died and value it as the most precious thing that anybody has ever done for us. To reject the good giver of every good thing is to choose evil, to be evil. To reject the giver of life is to choose death. And we've all done it in a thousand ways. And yet God's love cannot let us go so easily. He sent the lion to die as a lamb for us, to pay the price, to set us free. You have purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Once again, it sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Freedom from death? Really? Really. (laughs) As Christians, we believe not only that he died for our sins, but that he rose again. That's why he's got seven horns, because though he died, he rose again to power. Horns are a picture of strength on big beasts, the rhino with its horn. And he has seven of them, because his power is perfect. He died for our sins, and now he will rule over everybody without limits, every tribe, language, people, nation, no limits to his reign, ethnic, cultural, social, or political. His rule is for anybody that wants it for free. Not because it was free to him. He paid the price. But he paid the price that it might be free for you, whoever you are. And he gladly paid it to bring you back to your Creator. Verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I wonder how do you respond to that message? The harps of the cherubim and the elders here in verse 8, did you see them in verse 8, these harps? And the golden bowls that those angelic beings carry with our prayers, bringing them to God for us. Well, these harps show you how you're meant to respond with joy. Now, I just want to say for a second that that's, I'm guessing, probably not what you associate with harps. What do you think of when you think of harps? Probably concerts with people in frilly dresses, right? Well, here's a picture of some ancient Israelites. um, And they're actually on their way to exile in Assyria. They're carrying their harps, you see, because harps were like the ancient world's guitar. A portable instrument you took for parties. That's what we should associate with harps. But these guys, well, they're being punished for worshipping the gods of Assyria and Babylon. They are being sent into exile to Assyria and Babylon. Cruel empires. And the guy behind them there without a harp has got a whip in his hands because these were cruel rulers and boy did the tears flow for the Israelites. I reckon one or two of you might know Psalm 137, if only from the fact that Boney M covered it. (laughs) By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Jerusalem. There on the trees we hung up our harps For there, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion, the capital city of Israel where they used to live. And they reply, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? You see, the harps, they weren't for stuffy concerts, but for songs of joy. The songs of the Lord Do you sing his song with joy? Do you know Jesus' rescue of us is so good that even though we're still in a foreign land, we have reason to sing with joy, don't we? They say that the martyrs in Rome would go out singing with joy for the rescue that they had found in Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? Have you tasted the joy of his rescue? And will you respond in worship? Our final point. After all we've seen, worship the worthy rescuer king. Verses 11 to 14. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice that were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. What a song that must be to hear. I mean, you guys are pretty good singers, but hundreds of millions of angels singing together, wouldn't that raise the roof? And these are angels, they just cannot get over how worthy the lamb is of all praise. Sevenfold praise. Power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise belong to him. All worship is owed to him. Back in chapter 4 verse 11, we saw God only given three of those things for making us. He only got honor, glory, and power in 4 verse 11 for creating us. But now the lamb who was slain seems to be being praised even more than God the maker. Now if you've been listening to anything I've been saying today, you should be thinking, that's not right. That's false worship. That's idolatry. Isn't God alone the one we're meant to worship? Well, yes, he is, and that's the point, because the one who became a lamb is God. Isn't that remarkable, that the one who dwells in infinity and eternity, the one whom no one can see or ever has seen, pitched up on earth as a little human being taking on weakness, taking on death for you and rose again to prove to you that it worked and you can have the promise of eternal life too. Isn't a God like that worthy of worship? He's doubly worthy of worship. He made you and now he's rescued you from death even though you deserve death for not recognizing that he made you. What more must he do to show you how worthy of worship he is? I wonder, do you ever stop and think how good it is that a God like this sits on the throne of the universe? As a kid, um, one holiday at Marshwood Manor in Dorset, my dad, um, Joey, it's the next picture, it's not on Yoshida. My dad um, let me drive his Ford Scorpio 2.9 litre down the, the driveway to the farmhouse where we were staying. And um, ever since then, unfortunately, as fun as it was, I used to get anxiety dreams that I was on a motorway as a kid, driving my dad's Scorpio, really powerful, and about to crash and die and cause tears for a thousand people. Whew, the world is out of control. <laughs> That's what was really going on when I had those dreams. But can I say that human history is no longer out of control? The lamb who was slain rose again. He sits on the throne. And he's on God's throne because he is God. And because he is so good that he can unlock the scroll. Because he died that you might live. And no paradise again. The rest of Revelation, you know, it's realistic that the road ahead until we get to that day will be very bumpy indeed. John's first readers, again, went through more than just bumps, didn't they? As they were thrown to lions. But they were convinced that above the temples of the Roman gods, you can see it there in the picture, that one day the sunrise would come from on high. Because this king that we see here would come back and personally dry every tear. What a God. Let's keep worshipping him. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.